I think Islam hates us. They have done nothing except wreak havoc and terror for our faith and our religion. We, when we stand up to those who oppress our communities, that Allah accepts from us that as a form of jihad. Foundations of society are fragile. We must be the shepherds of our own civilization. If anyone answers either yes or no without making necessary distinctions, both are not telling the truth. They're lying. Father, we pray that your word will become a hammer that breaks rocks into pieces. That you will raise up in this nation pulpits and prophets that will call the nation back to repentance. Will you distance yourself from those who think differently or will you join us at the table and talk about what is really important? This is the Maida Initiative conversation without compromise. Yeah, thanks for being on here. I, uh, I just finished reading the book this morning. Mm. So I, I read the Kindle version and I, and I really enjoyed it. I have, honestly, I've wanted to have that friend group, a bunch of Arab friends to get coffee with and talk about politics for years at this point. So I got uh -huh. to live vicariously through your book. Yes. <laughs> you wish that I, you had formed that group yourself, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Like all I, now, don't get me wrong. I've I've had some great conversations with some Arab friends, mm -hmm. but a lot of them are Saudi, and they never talk about things with each other. If you ask all the Saudis I know, if you ask them a question about religion or politics, the first thing they do is they look around to make sure there's no <laughs> other Saudis in the room, and then they'll tell you. Yes, I, I could have told you that. Yes. <laughs> yes. But may I ask you first, uh, what is your own background, if you want to share it with me? I mean, religious-wise. Re yeah. Religion? Yeah. So um, basically, I I grew up in in a Christian home in a very secular part of England, and mm. and I started taking religion a lot more seriously when I was about thirteen, mm. as as far as being a Christian. So I read the Bible, decided I believed that it was true, did a lot of research. But then when I was, when I was like 19, I realized that most of my own interactions with religion, everything I knew about, say, Islam or Mormonism or other ideas, I'd only learn from people who agree with me. Mm. And I wanted to get beyond that. So I, I read the Quran, and then a few years later, I, you read the Quran in Arabic? No, no, no. no. Actually, yeah, mm -hmm. once, once, although I don't really speak Arabic very well. Um, <laughs> so I've, I've read it twice in English and I've listened to it all the way through in Arabic. Well, that's a lot more than I did. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, I also, and then I, getting through the Quran, I realized I didn't understand very much about Muslims through that. So... Mm. I decided to, I read, I listened through on audio, Sahih al-Bukhari and Sahih Muslim. And just wanted to kind of understand how the Muslim world worked. And then I got through that and realized, okay, I know all this stuff, but I don't know any people. So I found the local Muslim student association here in Seattle, where I live. And I just started going as a non-Muslim just listening, learning, asking questions, made mm -hmm. a lot of friends. And then, then th through that, we found out that we could have good conversations. That I expected it to be very standoffish, that 
there would always there'd just be this irreconcilable disagreement and we wouldn't be able to talk about it. But I found that by listening, being willing to see people as individuals, that we were able to have great conversations where everyone could really be themselves. Mm-hmm. And I was able to invite other people into that. And now I, and because of that, I now run a, a nonprofit here in Seattle where we facilitate friendship and worldview conversations between evangelical Christians and people from Muslim backgrounds. Mm. That's very ambitious, yes. And it's been, it's been a lot of fun. So mm. tell me about your background and what made you want to write this book? Well, I'm from, uh, I was born in Yemen, but, but Yemen is south and north, as you might know. And I was born in the Aden, which is, uh, or it, which was uh, a British colony. So I kind of grew up in a some, somewhat uh, British uh, environment. And my schooling has been mostly English British. Uh, and my university was also Edinburgh in Scotland. So I, I'm, I'm quite, I'm Arab, but I'm very British in many ways. My my wife is British as well, and uh, of course my family were uh, was a Muslim family. My, they're all very Orthodox uh, Muslims. My younger brother and other members of my family I know probably pray five times a day, even today, even now. Um, but I I've been the black sheep of the family in that in that sense. I'm the eldest. What else would you like to know? So at what point, I'm, I'm curious now, have you, what, have you always just sort of naturally been the black sheep of the family or is that something that's happened as you've grown older? Well, when I say black sheep of the family, only as far as uh, my belief in Islam and religion, only in that sense, you understand? Otherwise, I have been quite successful as a person. <laughs> so, uh, but my uh, religious uh, affiliation and uh, practice of uh, Islam has been next to uh, to nil. I mean, I, I don't pray or do do the fasting Ramadan or any of that stuff. So. Reading, reading the book, I kind of just had an ongoing assumption that Salah is the character that kind of represents you in this conversation. <laughs> uh, yes, many people have said that. But many people who have read the book um, have actually made that uh, remark as observation. Yeah. So, because I, I'm, a, I, I'm. I trained in science myself. I'm, I'm a physician. I'm a doctor, a neurologist, a brain doctor. So, yeah. So I, I read that about you, and then with Salah being a biologist, then I, 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 I kind of figured that that was at least part of your, part of your experience, in there. So, how how long has this book been in your head? Oh, maybe 
just about five years, not much longer than that. And uh, it came out uh, at the end of last year. So it hasn't been uh, there as a book. If you're asking me how long have you had these beliefs, that's, that's a different question. And then we're talking about decades. So what what inspired you to publish, write and publish this book right now? Because this is not this isn't the first book you've written. Oh, no, no, no. I've written uh, nine books, uh, but they're novels. And, uh, you know, if you go to Amazon, you'll find all of them just for you to know the titles. And also on a website called Smashwords. Are you familiar with that? No, I've it's, not come uh, across Smashwords. Yeah, Smashwords publish uh, ebooks, you know, that you can buy for $2 rather than Amazon, where you have to get the paper version mostly. Uh, so I have many of my books as ebooks e because I've, I've figured that uh, since uh, many of them are in Arabic, uh, or there are Arabic versions of my books. It'll be easier for people back home, and by home I mean Yemen and the Middle East. Uh, although my home now for the past 50 years has been Canada. Uh, back home, they would be able to kind of download them for a couple of dollars and maybe read them, as opposed to uh, get a paper copy, which is kind of difficult to purchase and, and transport all the way to um, a relatively primitive place like Yemen, you know, the postal service is very bad. So I'm I'm curious when you write this, when you wrote this book, who do you hope is your main audience? Uh, we've started the interview. I take it, have we? Oh yes, yes, here we have. <laughs> yeah, all right. Um, well, my audience, I'm hoping, is uh, the young generation who are, you know, like the age of my children or even my grandchildren, because uh, uh, that, that's, if, if you can achieve that, then you've achieved something. Uh, people who are in their 50s and above, uh, they don't really change their opinions very readily. Uh, they're already, uh, they've already formed them, and they formed them for good reason. Uh, they've studied the world like I did, and they came to a conclusion. And that, their conclusion is that, for example, you know, that you must fast uh, 30 days uh, every time Ramadan comes along, and that is very important, and it's uh, good for you, and it's going to take you to heaven. And, uh, you know, I respect uh, the fact that they believe that, that's fine. Yeah. So you, you, these people are very difficult to persuade otherwise. That's why we have to really educate the younger people. And what are you hoping the biggest takeaway from this book is? Oh, uh, oh of course, my uh, main uh, purpose is to break down uh, the uh, uh, rampant uh, hostility that exists in this world between uh, among uh, different 
religions and those who believe in those religions. And everybody think that their religion is the best and it's, uh, it has come from God. And therefore, how can it be wrong? And, and yet, uh, they're going to wars and they have no difficulty killing each other. Not only uh, between and amongst uh, religions, but even amongst different sects of the same religion, between Catholics and Protestants. You know, 500 years ago, it was a huge war. Uh, now it's Islam uh, between the Sunnis and the Shiites. Uh, and are those, are those the lines that are currently um, kind of dividing Yemen right now? Is it mostly Sunni Shia or is it a little more complicated than that? Uh, no, the Sunni Shia divide is definitely there because the Houthis are supposed to be Shiites and the rest of the country uh, is mostly uh, Sunni. And my own family are uh, Sunnis. Uh, Sunni background, uh, but uh, it is really a question of power. In the end, it's a question of power. You can use religion to achieve your power. If you can uh, use some other means, you use other means. And uh, that's what happens in countries that don't have any democracy. Uh, so you can use your title, you're a king or you're a descendant of a king or a prince, or you can use your religion to get to power, you can use your money to get to power. And it's all about uh, fighting over power. So why, why do you think the Middle East specifically right now has such a problem with, with fighting over power? It is uh, that's a very good question. Uh, I think that uh, the Middle East is going through what uh, Western Europe and Europe in general went through uh, five uh, centuries ago. Uh, and so it's not really surprising that uh, you have uh, violence uh, as a major uh, issue in, in the Middle East because there's no democracy. The idea of democracy has uh, not penetrated the Middle East yet. Uh, people believe in, uh, you know, the descendants of a certain king have to be uh, to rule the country or the descendants of Prophet Muhammad and I'm one of them, by the way. I, I'm, my family is uh, descendants of Muhammad. Uh, that they are above everybody else uh, because of that, and that therefore they should uh, lead. And many of them are. Many of them are distinguished people. But uh, to say that because I am a descendant of such person, then I have right to govern is completely uh, anathema to uh, democracy at least western democracy so do you do you would you think how much do you think religion in the middle east 
plays into this belief of certain families have the right to rule? Oh, a lot. Great thought. For example, the, I mean, you don't go very far. The uh, MBS thinks that he has every right to be the next king of Saudi Arabia. No, no, no questions asked. And you destroy anybody that, uh, that tries to get in the way. And I'm just using MBS as an example. But same thing uh, is true of any of the Arab countries, apart from a few exceptions, uh, like Tunisia, which has some fair degree of uh, democracy. Yeah, I actually, I had a, a lady called Tasneem Idris, who's part of the Islam and Liberty Network and has been pretty heavily involved in the Tunisian elections. Mm. So that is a very bright spot in the Arab Spring. So in order to get this change right, so, so one thing, a theme that almost all the characters in your book seem to agree on is that this change in the Middle East is inevitable at some point. So what do you personally think is the key to, from the Arab world going from where it is today to somewhere that's prosperous, free, people are able to live in peace? Are you asking me how long it will take or what, what, what would it take? Both. What? Hmm? I'm interested in what you have to say on both. How long you think it will take and uh, what do you think it would take? Yes. It will take a hell, a hell of a long time. Um, and what it would take is uh, education. Uh, and by that, I mean, I don't mean people getting PhDs and MAs and so on, but uh, kind of secondary school level education in 90% uh, of the population. So that the vast majority are clearly people who can think for themselves. What you need is to have people who think for themselves. And when you think, when you can think for yourself, you are able to challenge uh, a dogma. No, no, I don't agree with you. That's not how it is. You know, I think that, you know, you argue in, uh, like that uh, with some science behind you, some experience uh, behind you, some history that you have learned uh, at school or at university. So it will take uh, another generation at least because uh, not because the Arabs are stupid or because they are slow learners, because their leaders don't want them to get to that stage. And they'll allow them to have the best cars and greatest homes and nice roads and uh, all that, but they will not allow them to dabble in the discussion of democracy in their countries. Has take a long time, and it is uh, a form of self-preservation, if you like, on the part of whoever it rules. Because if you allow your subjects to uh, to understand democracy and to learn democracy and to spread democracy, you really 
kind of digging your own grave uh, in a non-democratic society. So how would you answer somebody from the Arab world who's saying, okay, well, we're, it's not right that you just copy the West. It's not working out very well for them. Why would you want that in Arab nations? Why should we copy the West instead of doing our own thing? But that's a false argument. How is the West as bad as the Middle East? We have democracy in the, the whole of Europe, you know, varying degree, but definitely a huge amount of democracy. We have very good democracy in Canada, where I live. You have uh, good democracy in the United States, in spite of what's happening right now. But it's, but in fact, what is happening right now is a, is a sign of democracy. Otherwise, how can you have all this attack on Trump? Because and he deserves it, in my opinion. But I mean, it's, it is a manifestation of democracy. And he will be defeated as well, uh, I'm pretty sure. And even, even if he wins the election, right, it's only, it's only four more years. Yes, that's correct. Now, um, so, so that, that's, that's one thing that is interesting about your book, that even the Muslim character, um, even he seems to believe that democracy is the best option for the, the Middle East in the long run. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's true of most Arab Muslims, or do you think that's an unpopular idea? I think it's uh, getting to be uh, a very popular uh, thought or belief, uh, because uh, people hear about it a lot on radio and television and podcasts like yours and so on. Uh, so. Uh, I don't think I don't think that uh, the even the uneducated uh, Arabs are walking around with uh, you know blinkers on their eyes. I think they understand that it is important to uh, move in the direction of democracy, but at the same time uh, they feel. The same, these same people, and even the people who are more educated, they feel that uh, helpless, they feel helpless. They feel that whoever uh, comes in to replace the people who are non-democratic right now will not be any better, or they will uh, become uh, despots with the passage of time. And you can't blame them because that's exactly what happened. You know, we have so many people who've uh, uh, been thrown out, like uh, Saleh in Yemen, like Saddam in Iraq, uh, like um, the guy in uh, Syria. Uh, and whoever took over from them has not really been able to achieve uh, democracy. 
but but I think what they forget that you don't just go jump from absolute dictatorship and brutality and uh, horrendous uh, system to uh, a democracy like uh, Germany or Canada. It doesn't happen that way. It happens in stages. It needs to have with it at the same time uh, awareness, education of huge uh, section of the population for it to establish itself and, and for it to last. Otherwise, you can switch from Mubarak to this guy, Sisi. Okay, so you've changed the leader. It's exactly the same system. In fact, it's even worse, maybe. Some Egyptians would tell you. So a question that's kind of, that, that represents more of what, what I believe here now, right? So, so in my experience, I meet a great deal of agnostic or atheist people from Middle Eastern countries, a, a lot of them. But Where? In, in the States? In the States, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't travel a, a great deal, but say, mm -hmm. and there's a good amount of, say, atheist, agnostic Saudis that I'll, that I'll meet. Mm -hmm. And it seems, looking at this from a Christian perspective, if you look at how Europe shifted, mm -hmm. I noticed at the end of your book, um, Samia said that there needs to be, there'll probably be some martyrs in the quest to transform the Arab world. And there certainly were in Europe. So when, when you're kind of introducing literacy on a wide scale in Europe because of the, because of people printing the Bible, you've got um, Hugh Latimer and Thomas Ridley who are burned at the stake by Queen Mary for their work in spreading this kind of, this kind of like literacy in Christian education. And they, uh, and Hugh Latimer turns to Thomas Ridley and says, take brother, take heart, brother Ridley for today. We will set such a fire in England that by God's grace, it will never be put out. So, so here's, here's, there's a roundabout way of asking a question, right? If in Europe, because people believed in the death and resurrection of Jesus and that they had the resurrection, it meant that they could be a little bit more cavalier with their lives because they believed they were dying for a greater good. So, whereas, and that they believe they're ultimately kind of rewarded for it and they're ultimately safe. Mm -hmm. How does, would you think a secular person who isn't who's kind of agnostic to the afterlife, agnostic to where kind of ultimate right and wrong are, how do you think a secular person gains the strength to stand up even to the point of death to change things in the world? Hmm. I've never really considered uh, that uh, question. It's a very intelligent question. I think that the secular person has other assets, though, for the same re uh, in the same way that the person who is uh, religious has his own beliefs, and those beliefs help him or her see things uh, in a certain manner. The person who is uh, secular. Uh, 
tends to be more familiar with uh, science by definition and therefore um, I can think I think more logically or at least uh, he does not have the problem of religious dogma or religious belief getting in the way of thinking through a certain pro uh, problem or thinking through the solution to a problem. So uh, each party or each group have their own uh, problems at reaching uh, a decision about what uh, to do in life and how to correct uh, the situation. But I think uh, in the end, the uh, secular person does not have the threat of uh, kind of death and damnation from above. That, you know, if you don't follow the Imam who has been chosen by Allah, therefore uh, you are going to suffer um, in hell. The secular person uh, thinks uh, more logically and says, yes, I can do this, might work, might not work, uh, but uh, I still think that it's worth it. And you, you know, you think logically, math or like mathematics, uh, uh, or at least logic, that if I do this, yes, true, I might be imprisoned, I might be executed, but my children will at least uh, survive and have a better life or my people my nation will be able to do that uh, so I think uh, a secular person is much better at uh, achieving uh, the aims and the uh, the result the result than someone who is uh, hampered by a religious belief which can uh, tie the hands of that person. I can, but some pushback I'd give uh, in the spirit of the book is that in the, in, the Re in the Reformation in Europe, what transformed Europe to what it is today, that it wasn't simply a straying away from religion. If you look mm -hmm. at the call of the renaissance right the the word the the phrase they use is ad fontes right to to the sources in that the idea is that years of tradition and and human governments have added layers of useless things the dead and useless on top of something that's true and we want to go back to the originals get rid of all the tradition figure out the core of what's true and then re return to that. So in some, some people who, who want to do that are kind of going to go to the Greek classics and go in a kind of more sort of agnostic direction. But nevertheless, they're trying to pursue some sort of truth for transformation. Whereas the Protestant Reformation is going back to the source materials of the Bible rather than the tradition of the Catholic Church and using that to transform. And that's fundamentally how we got representative government was through John Calvin in Geneva, Switzerland, then John Knox in Scotland, and then that spread to England and America from there, and then Germany much the same way. So it se seems to me 
that secularism is not necessarily a, a set of beliefs, right? You could be secular and not care about the world, or you could be secular and care deeply about the world. What do you think people who are secular should be thinking about? The people who kind of agree with you in your basic worldview, what are the things you think they should be focusing on to make the world a better place? Whether you are secular or not, uh, I believe that you need, first of all, to believe that you are simply a uh, one human being, that you are in this world for a limited period of time, and that you will disappear, and that you need to leave the world a better place than you found it, and that you uh, need to mitigate to reduce as much as possible the suffering of people who are not as fortunate as you have been uh, in this world and uh, there is uh, everything good to come from doing that uh, there's no downside to that the only people who think that uh, there is downside are those who are so uh, so uh, insist on wealth and more wealth and more wealth. And they don't want, they don't care about other people. But I think the average person, uh, actually, whether religious on or uh, uh, agnostic or non-religious at all. Uh, they still care about the uh, their neighbors and uh, their countrymen, their uh, people who are suffering in a faraway country. Uh, people in Yemen may care about what's happening to the Rohingya uh, or what hap what's happening to uh, American uh, blacks. And, and so on. There's no, uh, in, in, in today's world, which is so thoroughly connected uh, with all sorts of uh, uh, t technical <laughs> machines and so on, uh, we, we hear about each other. And so I don't think that religious people care about people any more than non-religious people. Uh, but what the difference is that religious people uh, tend to uh, believe what, and I'm talking about the context of uh, or in the Middle East, they tend to believe what their rulers uh, claim. Uh, in other words, uh, they're more likely to believe the imam when he says that I am the descendant of so and so and therefore I can I should rule you for the next uh, you know forever or my descendants my family will rule this country forever whereas the secular person will say no no this is the uh, world has changed we need some democracy in Iraq and in Yemen and Sudan and Libya and uh, Myanmar and uh, all over the place. So 
does that more or less answer the question or have I missed your? That I think what you just said is an area where I think you and I would be in an agreement that in, as I've explored the, the, the Arab world and the Muslim world in general, the, I think the thing that's holding back progress the most is this attitude of don't ask too many questions, just trust your leaders. Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I think that is poisonous wherever I see that. And sometimes I see it in Christians. Sometimes I see it in, in Muslims. Sometimes I even see it in, in secular people, especially in my generation. Right. I think someone like you, who's the first generation person who's secular, that you've had to question everything. You've had to do that to survive. You've had to be able to think. Whereas I think somebody who's third or fourth generation doesn't, hasn't had to answer the same questions as what they've always known. And I think that asking these important questions and not just accepting what we've been raised in without questioning it is, is beneficial for everybody. Mm -hmm. Yes. So, I, I, I agree with that. So let's, let's, let's go here, right? So let's say somebody who's, who's, read, who's read the book and they, they see the conversation between these four people and they think, I, I love this. I love to see people talking like this. I want to be a part of those kind of conversations. What advice would you give to somebody about making friends and talking to people from different perspectives? Well, the, the, the advice that I would give based on my own experience and which has been quite a few years because of my age is that there is a lot of, uh, there's a lot more in common. You have a lot more in common than you think. And you, will, you are not going to find out about these commonalities if you do not explore them. And so I would uh, suggest to younger people to actually uh, take the initiative and go and talk to someone who is potentially your ally, or even if someone you already know ahead of time that he is not your ally, you'll find that uh, he's not as bad as you thought, and that in fact you do have things in common. And we all as human beings have uh, things in common, like, uh, like mercy and love and uh, uh, compassion. And, and so uh, try to find those things and then through, uh, being, through friendship, you establish trust. And when you do that, uh, then those areas where there's an overlap between you and the other person in, as I said, in compassion or mercy or, uh, or truthfulness, you, know, uh, you can expand on those things because now you have established a degree of trust. You know, the person knows that you don't want anything from them. Uh, you don't want any money from them or any praise from them or any jobs from them. And what all, all you want is to simply air your own uh, thoughts and your own beliefs. And it's very gratifying to find that there are people who think like you. We, we all have found that. And we also have found people who disagree with us. And 
is that in the Middle East, unfortunately, if people disagree with you, they become instantaneous enemies. And this is something that the Arabs have not learned. Whereas the Europeans in general have. Why? Because uh, the Europeans have been used to democracy for a few decades, uh, I mean centuries, sorry, should be centuries, whereas the Arabs have, have not. And so in parliament, or even in at, a, uh, at an interview on television, if you have the host and you have Mr. A and Mr. B on either side, and they're discussing Shiites and Muslims, or they are discussing human rights, or discussing um, polygamy, or homosexuality, whatever you like, any of these questions. They don't talk to each other uh, and listen to the two different points of view and say, yes, I, yes, yeah, I agree with you there, but I disagree on this point. They actually take their shoes off and they throw the shoe across the ta uh, table at the other person. Have you seen that? Yes, I've seen it. I wrote. I, I I've always loved the uh, the video um, <laughs> of that reporter who threw two shoes at George Bush, and he meticulously dodged both of them. Uh, you know, politics <laughs> aside, for a man of his age, those kind of reflexes are impressive. Mm. <laughs> I think the whole world saw that uh, film clip, yes. <laughs> yes. But, but, but this is happening now uh, when, it, when there's a debate on, say, television in Cairo or, or in Damascus or whatever. I think, and I think what, really what's happening there is, is it's not just about the systems people are in, but it's about the kind of person people look up to so personally I, I think that the way many muslims look at muhammad is very similar to the way the greeks used to look at alexander the great in that they see the ultimate philosopher the ultimate conqueror and the ultimate governor so the ideal in europe for a long time was okay well what is a great man? A great man is somebody who defeats his enemies on the battlefield, subjugates his political opponents, and is philosophically wise. So everyone is trying to be that and look like that until somebody who's better than them comes along and overthrows them. Mm -hmm. And you can't overcome that until you replace that ideal of what, a, of what greatness is with something, with something different. And I think for Europe, that was putting the example of Jesus front and center, which, you know, which leads to, you know, John Locke's letter concerning toleration, where he's appealing to, okay, well, Jesus defines greatness, not by conquering others, but by self-sacrifice, by willingly laying down his life to serve other people. Mm -hmm. So I think we have to, and yeah, that's why as you read, Canada, right, has prime minister as the title, meaning first servant taken from the words of the New Testament. Mm -hmm. So I think there are, yes. some, there are some phenomenal servant leaders in the Arab world, but 
as you said in your book, they're in jails and they're currently suppressed. Yes, yes, unfortunately that is true. Yeah. Well, um, well, our time, our time for the show is up, but thank you so much for, um, for writing the book. I really enjoyed it. Where can people find that? And I'll, I'll link to it in the episode description so people can buy the book. I'm sorry, I didn't get that. Where can people find your book? So Austin Macaulay are the publishers. And I'm sure uh, you can just uh, uh, type the name on Google and it will lead you to uh, uh, where you can find it. But definitely I have it with uh, uh, Amazon. And I think Amazon is probably known to everybody in the world, <laughs> as far as I know. Yes, that's yeah. good. And some good PR for my, my hope for our base of operations here in Seattle where we have Amazon headquartered. So, um, yes. well, thank you for being on the show and uh, thank you guys for listening to the Almeida Initiative podcast. We'll be back next week.